Welcome back to another episode of the Free Thought Project podcast. Uh, today we have a guest host, uh, Gavin Nasciamento, as Jason is out. Um, this is a pretty exciting podcast as we are going to be delving deep into the psyche of freedom, rebellion, and the invisible chains that bind us. Join us as a luminary in the world of anarchy and a previous guest on the Free Thought Project podcast. He's a thinker who's challenged the very foundations of government and societal control and done so very successfully. Um, Larkin Rose. He's uh, the writer of the thought-provoking film uh, that comes out on Saturday called The Jones Plantation. He's here to share his insights and explore the underlying themes of this feature-length adaptation. Based on a short animated film from 2012 that went really viral because it, it blew the lid off of this secret control that, that, that uh, the powers that be wield over people. It, uh, it transcends uh, historical setting. And it has analogies that are that pose pertinent questions about human liberty, manipulation, the nature of power, and all that we see today. With his director and producer Andrew Treglia at the helm, this film will definitely and already has ignited like a huge conversation. I like I said before we started the podcast that Gavin and I were having a, a very you know in depth conversation about these illusions that govern our lives and the awakening that's needed to break free. I had and Gavin had the uh, great opportunity uh, yesterday to watch an early screening of the film. And I'm, we're pretty geeked out to uh, discuss it today. So, uh, Larkin, it's uh, great to have you back. And um, I believe your wife, Amanda, is there with you. Uh, your film, The Jones Plantation, it's, uh, it's more than just a story. It's like a philosophical exploration of freedom and control. And you've taken this metaphorical plantation and laid bare the psychological mechanisms that keep people obedient and in bondage. Um, can you share with our listeners like how you conceive this idea and basically what drove you to transform this concept into a film that uh, speaks to our present societal structure? Well, originally the, the animated version from like a decade ago was just a, a thought I had. A lot of my videos are sort of about like, what is some, some setting to describe the thing in a different way. And if you describe something in the, in the setting of fiction, supposedly, it kind of makes it easier for people to think about certain things. And it occurred to me that, you know, that the example of a slave plantation, which starts with, we just rule by brute force. You do what we say, cause we hurt you if we, if you don't. And then demonstrating that that actually isn't the most efficient way to enslave and control people. And so I thought we could make a, a easy, simple, short little video about, basically a consultant who comes into a to a slave plantation where they're having trouble with the slaves getting uppity and teaches them some things to do to fix that because that's if you just tell somebody that hey you're being treated by a like a slave right now using this method they tend to be defensive but if you can put it in the form of a supposedly fictional story an analogy you know whatever you want to call it 
it's easier for people to sort of digest and get the point. So the original animated version was just that. And then I met Andrew Treglia, the director down in Mexico a few years ago, and he was interviewing me for a different thing. And I happened to mention this video and he went and watched it. And then it was his idea. He said, what if we made that into a movie? I think the first idea is what if we made this into like a short and then it very quickly turned into a full length movie and then, you know, immediately started working on the script because telling people something by analogy is I've found so many times it's a good way to help people understand something that if you put it too bluntly and directly, they can't process it or they don't want to process it. So both the animated one and the movie version are designed so that people can just sit there and sort of enjoy, hopefully, an entertaining story. And along the way, their brain is is almost automatically going to go, hey, wait a minute, this this isn't entirely fiction. I think you also have to, it's funny to kind of know Larkin personally and understand that like from his perspective, he, he's the sort of guy that he's constantly having ideas. So when Andrew was like, why don't we make the Jones Plantation a full length feature film? One of the things I remember you saying, Larkin, is that you were just blown away that you hadn't thought of that first. You're like, wait, why didn't I think of turning this into a film? This is perfect yeah. for a film. Because the setting and the premise makes it a, a perfect way to sort of sneak under people's radar by telling a story that they can just watch and they, they can feel detached. They don't have to feel like attacked or defensive or anything. They can just watch a story and along the way accidentally stumble over some truths about <laughs> reality today. Yeah, like in, so my interpretation of all of this is that you, my friend, are uh, you an artist. You're a messenger of truth. That's how I classify it. And I thought the way you articulated everything now is, is very concise. Because oftentimes, you can't approach everybody in the same heavy-handed way, which is you shove in their face politics. Like, people are so sick and tired of the political narrative and the political story that you have to think of inventive ways, innovative ways to tell the story. And to me, just watching it, man, um, first of all, just massive respect. You did an exceptional job. The whole crew was very well done. Uh, it immediately made me think of other classics like Plato's Allegory of the Cave because it's such a brilliant allegory of the world in which we live today. And with that said, I wanted to ask you specifically like I have my own take. I think really good art is something that it has unambiguous messages. So it's very clear that the artist wants to say something directly. But then there are other parts. There are characters in the film. There are narratives and so on and so forth that are a bit more ambiguous and subject to interpretation. And within that, you can go within certain depths, right? You can interpret it literally. You can interpret it as an analogy. So I wanted to ask you just the basis of some of the characters. What was your personal intention behind some of these figures? And of course, you don't have to go through all of them, but just perhaps the most notable ones. Well, the the Mr. Smith character, basically the the consultant for slave owners that tells them how to do it more efficiently and 
get more productivity out of their victims. He doesn't represent an actual person. Um, in fact, I actually think that today there isn't anybody as good at it as Mr. Smith is because they seem to be stumbling and bumbling around. But there have been people behind the scenes um, now and historically where their entire focus is about human psychology and how you control it and you manipulate it. I, I was actually just doing a little series on my YouTube channel about some of the, the writings of Frederick Douglass, who grew up as a slave. And he describes his masters just openly describing some of the things of like, well, you can't let them think like we can't we can't let them learn how to read because then they'll become unmanageable. And you can back that up to like the, the Prussian indoctrination system where the the thing on which all Western education is based. I mean, openly, that's not it's not a secret. It's not a conspiracy. You can just look it up. The stated intention was to take away the free will of the students and replace it with the will of their masters so they can't think or do anything that wouldn't be in line with that. So it's all about mental and psychological control. So Mr. Smith sort of personifies the entire endeavor that's been going on for centuries to mentally enslave people. And then you have Mr. Jones and Mr. Johnson, uh, Mr. Jones being the plantation owner, thus the name Jones Plantation. And they sort of represent, first of all, they represent sort of old school ruling by brute force but they also represent all the politicians of any political party in any country, in any time period, the people who are trying to basically exploit and rob and, and enslave a subject class, but learning how to do that in a way where they can pretend, well, no, we're representing you. In fact, we're serving you like that. That line is actually, it's in the movie, as you've seen, it's like, well, now I'm going to be like Mr. Jones saying, I'm going to be serving you now from my management position and stuff. So the, it sort of represents how I don't think the, the politicians are the, the masterminds of anything. They're, they're thieves and, they're and liars and they're beneficiaries of the game, but they're not actually the experts at it. And, you know, people like Edward Bernays, who is sort of the father of propaganda. He was way more an expert of, of human psychology and, and thought control. So sort of everything, like in the movie, Mr. Smith is basically in charge and owns everything, including the people who don't even know it. Because he who knows how to control the human psyche and mentality and emotions through manipulation and fear-mongering and all that, he's the one in charge. So the underling politicians, yeah, they're they're sort of they're enablers and collaborators with evil, but they're not the masterminds. They're just sort of the the in-between thugs. And then you get the the overseer, who's actually played by Andrew Treglia, the director, um, Jimmy Jack, who's you know the slave whipper and in charge. He's law enforcement. <laughs> He's the one whose job it is to make the people under him obey the people over him. Um, and there's a few lines in there that are obvious. And I don't, I don't know how long and rambling a detailed answer you want, 
but I'll throw in one more thing and you can ask about other specific characters if you feel like it. Um, Noah, the character of Noah, because you have Samuel, who's basically the hero who, who starts to realize something's wrong here. We're not free. This isn't an improvement. There's games going on. This is nasty stuff. But I will th throw out this, which will probably offend some people listening. Noah is the libertarian party. The idea of, well, maybe I can play within their game and I can, I can somehow acquire some of the power and use that power to free us. Um, and that just, it just sort of gets laughed off by the people in control and then dismissed and it accomplishes nothing because it's still under, the whole game is under their control. The whole game is designed by them. So, yeah, he, he gave his speech to try to run for office. And I, I don't know how many people would recognize that. Yeah, that that's third party. Right. And that's, <laughs> that's how well that works. <laughs> and I'm sure some people will be upset by that, but that's called reality. That's why we made the movie to throw rude reality in people's faces. Well, I actually kind of feel like the people that will get it more obviously, and it'll be kind of more, I guess almost cartoonishly obvious are the people who have been so embedded in the Liberty movement for so many years that they've gone through the phases. Like, yeah, I remember when I was like a statist Republican and then I was a libertarian. And then for five seconds, I thought that maybe the libertarian party could do something until I was like, never mind, I'm an anarchist. And I think there's people that went through that train that anyone who's been here long enough, they're just, they'll see Noah as what he is. But I think other people, they might go, right. they, might, they might have an aha moment later, like, right. oh. But it's important that people understand why it doesn't work, why it's all part of the same rigged game that can't possibly work and is set up to not possibly work, right? It's not just sort of, oh, that could have turned out better, but it didn't. Like, no, you know, it was doomed from the beginning. Um, and the a lot of these things are, I, I can, I get into more detail with them in the novel because we're actually about to release the novel of Jones Plantation right after the movie. Um, because there's a whole lot more in depth you can get into the mentality and the psychology and the philosophy and all that, that you can't fit into a, a movie without making it a 12 hour movie, which we weren't going to do. Is anyone surprised that Larkin Rose's character had like way too many lines for a movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My original script was about probably almost another hour it would have been so andrew's like this is awesome now make it an hour shorter than it is okay <laughs> that was that was hard. great in the beginning <laughs> like seeing you in the cotton field drinking and just looking pissed <laughs> yeah I, I thought it was appropriate that the in the first scene you have the director yelling at the writer <laughs> <laughs> that about sums up production <laughs> man like the, the the there's a a well i don't know who actually said it but it's oftentimes attributed to uh to van goth the the quote none are more hope none or more are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they're free yeah that's like that just kept repeating in my head the entire time i was watching that movie you know and then when Mr. Smith told the slaves that freedom isn't free, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh man, there, there's, there's just so many commonalities and analogies that you guys drew with like today's society that were so brilliant. When they, when TT was killed and he, you know, he was like, justice for TT, justice for TT, yeah. you know, they and uh, I mean, even, even the Biden smelling children, <laughs> there's just a, they're like, there's so many, I'm going to have to just rewatch it like several times just so I can get all those subtle ones, you know, but 
Uh, I mean, you had so many great analogies in there that uh, there. I wanted to ask you about this. Like, it, I mean, you didn't have this one in there, but it would have been very. I mean, it probably would have been difficult and probably been a twelve-hour-long movie. But like, if if you could have worked like a drug war analogy in there, how would you have done that? Uh, it's funny because there were so many more subplots, even in the original, right. in the first version of the the shooting script, there were some other subplots in there that weren't in the final thing because we just had to cut it for time. Um, so there's, uh, I can't even remember like at what point along the line, different, different things got, got cut out. Um, we did, we did an abbreviated version I have to try not to do spoilers in here. Yeah. yeah. Um, of when he when he meets people on the neighboring plantation and what happens. Um, that had been longer. Almost every almost everything in the whole movie was longer in the original script. Um, but the idea of like the drug war probably there was going to be more mention of the fact that the which was an actual thing in slave times that the, the masters actually liked it when the slaves get drunk. Like if they're not on work duty, get, you know, falling down drunk and sick and then go back to work the next day. Um, so I don't know that there was anything directly really, like analogous to the drug war. Um, but there was definitely the thing of, of, you know, we get to decide what you're allowed to have. Like you're not allowed to, in the in the novel it talks about how they're not allowed to grow their own food they're not allowed to hunt so it limits it so they have to deal with the plantation so they're stuck in this trap and then they say well you're buying things like you're free to earn money and buy things from us and yeah but you you only let us do it right here so it isn't that's not a choice that's not freedom so there's there's a lot of things like that i'm yeah i'm not sure what would directly be the equivalent of like the drug war other than like fabricating something that you're not allowed to do this. We're just going to make up something you're not allowed to do and then punish you. Yeah. Like somebody healing themselves or something, you know, like, Oh, they grew right. <laughs> like one of the slaves putting like a salve that they made from leaves on their leg and like, that's illegal. Right. You have to buy this from us. You can't do that. If you do that, there would be anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> like speaking of uh, like, buying the stuff from them you know the the i know gavin and i were talking before the podcast about the money the money in there and yeah one of the quotes was you know that this shit isn't even worth wiping your ass with <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a subtle hint and that was one of those things I, I definitely wanted to be in there and i think a lot of people like a lot of normal people who don't know anything about how the currency system works and how the banking system works are just going to go, oh, that would be a clever trick. And hopefully, like, whether it, ha whether it occurs to them just then or like a day later, a week later, a month later, when they're looking at the money in their hand to go, wait a minute, <laughs> is this just, do they just print this stuff? <laughs> um, and I think there's going to be a lot of stuff like that for, for normal viewers where they view it as a story outside of themselves. It's just a fictional story with, you know, nasty manipulative psychos controlling and and exploiting people. And I hope as they go about their lives, they start noticing around them in real life. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, crap. 
That's why the, literally the tagline that we've been using is we all live on Jones plantation. <laughs> In case it wasn't oh, enough from the movie, just smack like this is here and now. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, fantastic insights on everything that you, you've been expressing. And that actually leads me to ask you specifically, like now you said we all invariably are on the proverbial Jones plantation. And something that I, I thought was very powerful in the film is obviously this theme of how the wolf in sheepskin, it just changes the sheepskin. And it was also a quote specifically where the character Smith, who that was such a brilliant character, brother. You did an awesome job with that. And even the guy that played it did an exceptional job. Yeah. Where he basically says that regardless of the scope or the size or the dimension, the game is still the same. And it immediately made me think, I'm sure you've heard at some point about Carol Quigley, Professor Carol Quigley. He spoke mm -hmm. about how the British Commonwealth was in fact invented because the thinkers, the social scientists, the social engineers, the Smith-like characters, they realized that it was auspicious, that it was in their best interest. It was politically expedient to go ahead and invent this because people were becoming disillusioned with imperialist Britain. So I thought that was very powerful. And then I wanted to just ask you very quickly, where do you see themes like that existing today? So obviously there's the US government, but there's a broader system as well that I think escapes people a lot of the times. Could you talk to that uh, just for a moment? Yeah, and the the US, you know, the US with its ruling class here is basically one little plantation. Like notice that the character of Mr. Smith He's a consultant and he's done this before. And hopefully it sort of comes across that he's given these talks over and over again to different plantation holders um, of here's how you control people and here's what you do, because it represents the fact that this isn't new. This isn't isolated. This isn't just here and now. This is everywhere all the time. Like the, there are constantly the nasty people who have been studying this stuff for centuries and centuries and making use of it. And you can see it on tiny, you know, some little township government doing their dumb little propaganda up to, you know, NATO and the UN and every single government in between. And even, you know, certain manipulations still happen on an individual basis of their just like manipulative, narcissistic sociopaths who know how to play other people because, you know, actual like actual psychopaths who have no empathy, they basically have to figure out how to pretend to be a normal person, like pretend to be a decent human being who has empathy and stuff in order to manipulate other people. And there's parallels all up and down the entire thing of this is, this is how people function if A, they're intelligent, and B, they don't give a crap about anybody but themselves. And so everything they do is designed to get what they want from other people in one way or another. And that's true of individuals. It's true of every level of government, every size of government everywhere in the world throughout all of like written history. Um, and it's even true in, in some things outside of government where the, where similar manipulations and stuff are used, but like, 
churches used to do this all over the churches used to be the giant authoritarian monstrosities you know torturing people to death if they didn't believe and and stuff like that so the labels and the the names may change over time and that the exact methods used and the details may change but this is really just sort of the expression of evil to to not be too dramatic to me the epitome of evil is to try to reduce other human beings to just things for you to use like deprive them of their free will their conscience their judgment their ability to control their own life and their own thoughts their ability to educate themselves and learn stuff and so it it has parallels basically anywhere there's nasty psychos there are parallels with what this movie shows one of the things that larkin and i um we personally find fascinating, but also we hope people just sort of notice this in the character Mr. Smith and the slave owners is that something that's interesting about modern day that people didn't really have in you know those times is that in modern day we have what we call this whole field of psychology. And so we have like terminologies for everything that and language for things that we didn't have language for before. And some of that is partly because of the field of psychiatry that, you know, went overboard and has the DSM-5 and it labels everybody things. But I, I Larkin and I did uh, talks at Anarchapulco a few years back and he did one called The Nature of the Beast. And I did the, I, be, I basically did a complimentary talk with it called The Nature of Man. And our discussion was about the difference between basically sincere human beings and insincere ones. And that if you go through life projecting your sincerity and your honesty, because you're an honest person, onto the whole world, you won't realize that individual humans out there that look like other humans aren't necessarily like you. And they don't care about other people they aren't sincere at all and they have one goal and it is manipulation and now in the modern day we have these words for things like oh in the dsm-5 this guy's borderline personality disorder and sociopathic narcissist only larkin and i just sort of noticed over time if you try to log every politician or every control freak in the dsm-5 they've all probably got some labels that would fit them because that is what the state as a whole is just made out of it's individuals but it's only going to be the individuals who that you meet in everyday life that you might run into on accident are the types that use language to manipulate other people against their will it's like a salesman that doesn't care if you really want to buy the product he wants you to buy it so he's going to trick you into wanting it versus the salesman that doesn't really give a shit he wants you to be happy and he knows he's not going to be a great salesman if he manipulates you so he's just going to make sure you actually want the product and he's going to use words to help you get what you want and that's using words properly and so i think it's going to be a psychological film that a lot of people don't see it as psychological at first as much until their brain starts to like larkin said in a way notice correlations but instead they'll start to see people in the world they run into as like oh that guy has like the mannerisms and talking points and slimy exterior of like mr smith i shouldn't be listening to this guy is there something off about him 100 percent. i wholeheartedly agree and that is in fact how i view the character of smith that he's more the personification of like an intangible ideology of psychopathy or elitism but just something very yeah. underhanded and cutthroat and I, and I thought it was brilliant as well 
Um, and it's going to certainly be considered controversial by some people, but it is what it is, that you chose a black dude for that character. And the reason why I thought it was such a good choice is because people are always amenable to somebody they feel like they can identify with. That is, in fact, what politics is largely predicated upon. Corporations operate this right. way. And so they always try to find that kink in our psychology through something that we are amenable towards. And the thing about Smith is he has no allegiance to skin color. His allegiance is to yep. the ideology of elitism and psychopathy. And in fact, the way I personally interpret it, just so I can uh, help people also realize that by watching this, it's very similar to a film like The Matrix, where you have so there's so much depth to it that you can get lost in the different interpretations, which makes it such a great film. For me, when I looked at it, yes, he personified the ideology of like evil, but also in a literal sense, like you were saying, he's he's like a social scientist, which in fact at the late 19th century got introduced into governments all around the world, and specifically in the 20th mm -hmm. century, as a means to control the population. And we saw this especially during the so-called pandemic, during the lockdowns. Uh, we know about, for example, with the lockdown papers through the Telegraph, that the British government got caught doing this with social engineers that were weaponizing fear. And then on another level, yeah. just to, uh, to throw this out there, um, so that you can see like how other people can interpret this in so many different ways. I remember when George W. Bush came into office and the invasion of Iraq and the pushback against that, those were the largest protests in history, according to the Guinness Book World of Records. And people were so disillusioned with the Bush administration. And the whole world, it was this massive anti-war movement. It was so unified. And it really felt like we were on the verge of a major revolution, like worldwide. And then in came Mr. Smith in the form of Barack Obama. And that just pacified the war movement in such a massive way. And it culminated, yeah. ironically, it culminated in the invasion of Africa, most notably through the invasion of Libya and the overthrow of Gaddafi. So I just wanted to comment on yeah. that quickly and say, man, there's so many ways to interpret this film. And it's so, so brilliant that I hope everybody gets to go and see it and also share it with their family and friends. Yeah. And this, this template is, you know, the overall approach has been used all over the place all the time. And so, you know, the more people <laughs> notice the parallels with like everything they see on the news, like every single thing, the better. And the, the idea to have uh, Mr. Smith be a former slave came very early on when we were meeting with the director in a random warehouse in Phoenix. Um, he's not, He's not a former slave in the original little animated version, but it occurred to me it's too like one of the divide and conquer things that politicians constantly use is race. So they want the, the white people scared of black people and black people resenting white people and like because divide and conquer, make them hate each other. And then both sides are going to be whining to politicians to to please have lots of power to protect us from the other one or serve our interests at their expense. And so the idea of making Mr. Smith a, a slave was like, I don't want anybody to think this is about how black people are all saints and white people are all evil. Um, because that's that whole mentality, that that whole group think pack mentality is just stupid. Now, as it happens, there aren't really any good 
white characters because if you're on a slave plantation in antebellum south there's not going to be a whole lot of good white people there unless they're like <laughs> trying to help the slaves escape um there's a little bit of a, a character arc like in the good direction but he has a long way to go to actually count as good um i won't say any more about that for the the spoiler thing um but yeah i wanted to make it really dang clear to people this isn't about race. This isn't, it's not even about the actual characters in the movie. It's about human nature and history and psychology and the reality we live in. And like you said, it's, it's, it doesn't matter who the person is and they'll play these games. Like you were talking about, Oh, here comes Obama, the anti-war candidate who won a Nobel prize for saying he wasn't going to be a warmonger. <laughs> And then, of course, he was, and he did worse than George Bush did, as far as how much the you know the bombings and drone strikes and all that. And nobody cared because the propaganda worked on them. And so the uh, I thought it was also important that because the slaves, and again, the, the novel can get into more, this more than a movie does, into the mentality of people, the slaves are like, oh, look, one of us has come to free us. And what do what does every single politician pretend to be? And usually they suck at it. They pretend to be the common man. I relate to you. I know your struggle. Like, no, you don't. You've been a political parasite your entire life. And you're going to put on a plaid shirt and stand in the back of a pickup truck to try to convince people you're like a human being. <laughs> because the entire game they play is, I'm just like you. Can I have power over you? And people fall for that. And, and... You know, people of all colors fall for that. And it's, I hope this is a good smack in the face. And the fact that, that, um, the Martha character is like, maybe it's the grace of God that brought, brought Mr. Smith here to save us, which is just to me, one of the most just depressing lines in the whole thing, because <laughs> people have that view. They, they view some new political savior and they had this about literally the worst tyrants in history, the, the cheering throngs cheering for who we now know are the worst tyrants in history, just mass murderers. The people were excited about it because they fell for the lies. 100%. Man. I, I think it's uh, interesting that uh, when Barack Obama was running, I was just, uh, I was basically just barely uh, an adult right out of high school. So still a kid. And at the time I was my, I was a re Republican by just default. So unthinking slave think is kind of what my brain was run on. It was sort of like I perceived politics as this yucky, necessary thing that you're just supposed to root for your team, right. which I mean, if you look at it for what it is, that's about what it is. So I remember Barack Obama, but I saw him through the lens of, you know, Republican. And I think it's a little bit profound that at the time I did notice because I was scrutinizing the Democratic candidate. I listened to this guy and I remember one of the first times I sat through one of his speeches and listened to him talk. And I remember the crowd going wild. And I listened because I was actually critical of him, not of my candidate. So I noted by the end of it, I had a striking thought to myself. I was just blown away by the fact that the crowd was going wild. And I realized he said so many English words and they conveyed absolutely nothing of substance whatsoever. And the crowd just interpreted that poetic mush to mean, I guess, whatever they thought it would mean. And then what's even more interesting about my own slave think is because that's so compartmentalized, I proceeded to just not 
apply that same critical thinking to my own candidate and look at the fact that McCain wasn't really any different. (laughs) (laughs) And now you have Trump (laughs) and, and lots of people just hallucinated Trump as this warrior for freedom. It's like, he didn't even pretend to be that like all he's just another puppet in the puppet show and people falling for it. And that the, um, I don't want to give away that that you'll probably know what I'm talking about, but just out of the blue, the movie suddenly shifts over to something that makes almost everybody laugh. It's like, what that, what just happened? Um, where the, the slaves, I mean, workers are allowed to choose which one they want managing the plantation. And mm-hmm. at that point they're allowed to pretend to be enemies and say bad things about the other ones. And like criticize, oh, Mr. Jones wants to do things the old way and blah, 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 blah. And because they 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 look like they're bashing each other, people can think, oh, yeah, now I have a choice. And now, you know, I have some influence on this and I have to decide which one of these guys has my best interest at heart. And what I the the biggest thing I hope people take out of the movie is to watch it. And then go out and the first time they see a political campaign, just cringe and go, oh, damn it. Like, that's what, <laughs> that's every political campaign. And it's true. Yeah. The, the funny thing is Andrew actually used actual political campaigns for a lot of that because they're so predictably generic and meaningless. And they're all just emotional manipulation mush that the person listening can just hallucinate into meaning whatever they want it to mean. And I mean, even the slogans of like, make America great again. Like what the hell does that mean? (laughs) Build back better. Well, that's like the same thing, but with worse grammar. (laughs) None of it means anything. Anything. It's just goodness and good and good stuff. (laughs) Vote for me. And people can just hallucinate that into meaning whatever they hoped it meant. And, you know, like when Obama was running and there were people doing polls and a bunch of people thought he was just going to be handing out huge piles of free money. I was like, where did you get that? They just wishfully thought it into existence in their heads just by the emotional manipulation. And what I hope people get out of this movie is when they see behind the scenes and what it's done for and then they see it in real life. I hope they recognize it and go, oh, man. And notice that it's everybody. It's every candidate on all sides, including the people they've voted for. It's the same game. For sure. It really is. It's, it's crazy. It's uh, so weird that this hypnosis, this hallucination that you know, that, that you call it, uh, works so well. You know, we have uh, we had Mark Passio on the podcast not too long ago, and he's like a you know, he's big into the occult and on, on, and mind control and these things that these people use to be able to keep people in this state of hypnosis. And, um, there's actually a part in, uh, the Jones plantation. I don't want to give too much away, but where, you know, Mr. Smith is doing something in his room. And I was wanting, I was wondering, um, you know, like, was this a reference to the occult? Were you trying to like say that some, sometimes like this, these powers that be you know this the 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 psychopath elite class are are do you think that they they channel the occult is that was that anything i'm just curious as to where that came from yeah and the director and i went back and forth on that um on how much of that to include and and i like the balance we ended up with because i didn't want people to think 
oh, so it's all about like this weird occult thing. It's like, well, no, like I, I, I like dropping the hint in there that, yeah, these psychos may be into some really demented stuff that most people don't even want to think about and don't even want to imagine. But I didn't want it to sort of turn into a, well, that's the real problem. Like the game is the problem. The manipulation is the problem. The attitude is the problem that they're, you know, the Mr. Smith's view of reality of everyone else is just a thing to be manipulated and controlled. But I, I was okay with, with dropping in the hint that, yeah, I think a bunch of these psychos get into this weird stuff. And some of that's not a secret, you know, when you have like skull and bones club that, you know, a bunch of these politicians have been through, like, that's not a secret. That's not a, it's not a debatable reality. That's, there are those things. Now people can debate like how creepy and satanic they get and whatever. And to me, the, the extent of that doesn't even matter all that much. If people, if people can get their brains to escape the indoctrination then the full depth of these people's psychopathy doesn't even matter because they lose all their power. But I did, I did agree that, that we should sort of drop in a little reference to the fact that these Mm -hmm. people may be way, way more messed up than the average person can even Mm -hmm. imagine. Because again, a, a normal, decent person, they can look at a politician and go, well, I think he means, well, maybe he's a little bit corrupt to make money. And the, the, like one of my favorite lines from Mr. Smith is how he talks about how, you know, if you want real power, you need to be willing to do what most people consider to be unthinkable. And the whole point of that is if you're willing to do things that other people cannot imagine you would intentionally do, you have a massive advantage over them because they're going to try to imagine good intentions because they're, they're trying to project their own goodness onto others. Like, okay, yeah, maybe that politician, it wasn't the best. Mistakes were made. It's like, they weren't mistakes. They were on purpose. They were trying to create a war over there to murder a bunch of innocent people to enrich themselves and grab more power. It wasn't a tactical error. It's just, they're insane and evil. (laughs) And one of the, one of the things about the res, I call it residue of like, the psychology of statism is it can still be there. A lot of people go through their whole lives and and they become free in a sense sort of, and they start to mentally question, but there's, there's so many layers of disillusionment that it's, it's sort of hard for the human psyche sometimes, even in the modern world, like it's, it's obviously hard. We see it around us to break free of that, you know, this insanity that once you're on the outside of it, it seems so obvious. And I, I, one of the most, um, I guess, sort of heartbreaking things that would just hurt my spirit when I heard it was hearing other like acquaintances or f- friends in the liberty movement actually say out loud, well, I mean, I think like Trump meant well. And I'm like, mm, mm-hmm. n- no, you do not <laughs> quite understand the psychology of statism yet. That's just you're not clear in your head yet. Because once people are clear in their heads about that psychology, you can see it like a giant ugly costume on anybody wearing it anywhere around you and their language matches. <laughs> And that's the main thing for me, like in the animated version, um, you just see the, the, which is just 10 minutes long or something. You just see the workers view of what's going on. And in the movie, you get to see what the workers see and then behind the scenes. So you get to know the intentions and then 
how they convey that to the the workers to to get what they want and i mean it's so it's so in your face that i hope a bunch of people are are able to like remember that into their real lives and recognize that wow could this all really be that like it isn't even two people with different ideas trying their best it's not even that it's not even that they have different ideas it's not that any of them has any principle or any idea at all other than enslaving people and realizing that in order to enslave people, you have to put on a show and you have to pretend they have a choice and you have to pretend you're doing it for their good and, and, and all that stuff. And like, it's the thing I've, I've often mentioned that, you know, if you see somebody do a magic trick and you go, Ooh, oh, whoa, how do you do that? And then they show how you did it. Well, the next time they do the trick, you're like, oh, yeah, I know how that's done. I know what you really did. And that's what I want people to get when they walk out of the Jones plantation. I want them to go out in the world and go, oh, yeah, I know that trick. I know why you're saying that. I know what you're doing. I know who you really are and what you're really motivated by. So this stupid show you put on is not going to trick me anymore. I, I really hope it has that effect, man. And I, I, kind of, I spoke about the analogies earlier. Some of them were funny, but there's one, there's like an underlying analogy that we see, um, you know, everywhere throughout society. I have an example of it when, um, when I, like, I guess 10, 10 or 12 years ago, I had a conversation with my dad right when I was starting to like kind of wake up to everything. Well, it was more than that, 15 years ago. Um, and when I saw Tower 7 collapse into its own footprint, you know, <laughs> I which I was trying to tell, I was trying to have a conversation with my dad and just tell him like, hey, look at this, dad, this building wasn't even hit by a plane and it collapsed at free, free fall speed into its own footprint. And, uh, you know, they're saying it happened from office furniture. And my dad was like, there was never another tower that fell besides one and two, you know? And then I was like, well, no, look, well, here's a video of it. You know, I'm showing him a video and he got defensive and angry about me showing him the truth, you know, that there was another building that fell down on, on nine 11 that like that the news doesn't really talk about. And most people don't really talk about and all over because they're, they're ignorant to the, you know, to the fact. And that's, that's like a, you know, that's a heartbreaking reality in today's world. And, you know, I don't want to give anything away in the movie, but, but that, that was a, a reality in a the movie. There was, there was truth spoken and, and instead of embracing it, you know, the, the rest of everybody else ridiculed and, and got angry at it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that being said, like, I know you guys have been doing like this candles in the dark seminar, mm -hmm. you know, which actually helps people to break out of this mindset. Mm -hmm. What are like, what are some of the steps that people can take like to, you know, you know how we always got to do the white pill and we're wrapping up here. So, uh, like what are some of the steps people can take to, to light some candles in the dark? So like they don't get angry like my dad did, you know, and they could share with friends and family who will, you know, who would also cheer on the persecution of people who speak the truth. Right. Right. Cause notice that what you were trying to tell him was to him unthinkable. Literally. Yeah. He could not bring himself to consider that possibility. I mean, there, that, that describes a whole lot of people when it comes to like nine 11, because if the other option is wait, you mean they just murdered a few thousand Americans on purpose? Like they cannot allow themselves to think about that possibility because it's so creepy and terrifying and utterly evil. And they don't, they so much don't want it to be true that their brain doesn't let them think about it, which is why it's literally unthinkable. 
to them. And because of that in, in candles in the dark, where we, you know, train people how to talk to other people about the stuff. One of the things we say is don't argue about factual stuff and predictions and current events, because as you <laughs> saw firsthand, if somebody's brain is unwilling to look there, they just get defensive and they're getting defensive on behalf of like the worst people in the world. They don't know it. They're not trying to do that, but because they don't want to be able to consider that they're going to like take the side of literally mass murders rather than want to hear something. And yeah, there's a, you know, near the end of the movie, I won't give the specifics, but they very much don't want to hear certain things about what's been going on. Um, and so in Candles in the Dark, the approach is completely different where the entire approach is about asking the person questions about what they believe and how they think people should behave because you can actually get all the way to the contradictions without any of the specifics, all the you know conspiracies that have happened, all the warmongering, all the propaganda, all the specific examples of this. If you just keep it to what the person individually actually believes and, and ultimately the question is at the end of the day, which do they feel they should follow, you know, when it comes right down to it, their own conscience or the dictates of authority. Like if there's a conflict there and you have to choose one, almost everybody, if you walk them up to it, you know, using the right kind of questioning at the end of the day, they'll say, yeah, there is a point at which I would do what I think is right and disobey the law or government or authority or whatever. And that's, to me, that's just releasing the voluntarist that's already inside of them rather than try to bludgeon them over the head with ideas to try to like make them think what I think. It's really let them think what they really think by digging it out from underneath the authoritarian indoctrination they've been through. And that's one of the thing, reasons why I like Candles in the Dark to give what you said was, you know, can you can you give us like some tips on how to sort of reach people and really without giving too much away because the seminar is really in depth. And if you've never done anything like it, you really it, you should actually do it. I really recommend it. But um, it does essentially start with one of the main things is open with or start with asking the person sincerely that you're talking to what is something that they absolutely like like what's the thing they hate most right now that government is doing. And one of the best things about a ruling class that is currently stepping on everyone equally at the moment is that everyone right now is a version of disillusion. So the soil is ripe. And the, one of the first things you can say to them is just, what's like the thing that you literally wish the government would stop doing right now and you hate it. And they're going to just go, well, I mainly, I want them to not do this. And you can, and, and because we don't want any government to exist, the obvious answer as an anarchist was, well, I don't want them to do that either. Um, and you just agree when they, when they say something you agree with, you go, yeah, I agree with that. And then you follow up with another question. Okay. Well, um, you know, what is, what is something that like, you know, you think government, you do want it to do and you know and so they then they have to actually think about that and that actually gets interesting because a lot of times that's a harder question to answer than they expect because they're so focused on everything they hate about it at the moment um and when they respond with that it's an opening for you 
to in to invite them to think about okay well what if we turn that around what if i want something different am i allowed to want something different would you want that granted to me and then it becomes about the morality because it's about them thinking about the consent of them as a slave and you as a slave and who consents to what did we consent to any of this and the question the line of questions goes much deeper than that but when you start with asking them a question about what they hate most and then you agree with them and then you get them to follow a line of well if you hate that do you also hate this what do you like are you willing do you want this enforced what if i don't like it are you willing to have do you want that enforced on me do you want government what do you want to have happen to me if i want this and you want this and we want different things if your candidate wins, do I have to force to be forced to obey this law? Do you want me thrown in a cage? And if you ask these questions like that and you bring it to that, it's weird how their mind will, they're not focused on it as the beast or as the government in these current events. They're just answering direct moral questions. And it inadvertently starts to unravel their status to think. Yeah. And the whole, the whole approach can sort of be summed up. I mean, there's a lot more to it. But it can sort of be summed up as instead of I'm going to talk to you because I want to control what you think, whereas the politicians will talk to you because they want to control what you think. The the entire approach of candles in the dark is I want you to actually control what you think and be immune to everybody else's propaganda and manipulation because I don't want to control you either. I don't I'm not trying to be emperor king or anything. I want you to control your own brain. And it's that that's something that most people don't naturally do. Like when they go into debate mode, it's usually I'm going to argue you down and tell you why you're wrong, which is understandable and, and justified. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't do any good. And so the whole, you know, the whole thing of, of Samuel in the movie being the character of he, he wants them all to be free. It's not like he's trying to be in charge. And, but he's up against, but he, he has nothing to offer them. He has no free goodies. He's not, oh, I'm in charge and I'm going to make sure all this happens. He's just trying to give them a truth that they don't really want. (laughs) And he's in competition with the psychos who are trying to control their minds. And that's, you know, that's where we are right now of, you know, you guys on your podcast and what we do and is trying to free people's minds so that they're in charge of their own minds. It's not so I'm in charge of their mind or you're in charge of their mind, but so they can reclaim ownership of their own brain and their own conscience. 100%, man. Definitely wholeheartedly agree with, with everything you said there. Um, I also, I like to remind myself that overwhelmingly we share the same principles as human beings, but what divides mm-hmm. us inevitably always is our perceptions and that's what the ruling class tend to weaponize against us they take our perceptions and oh you don't see this and believe this as i do because none of us can perceive the entirety of reality and then this divides us but if we can refocus people's minds just on being a human being just on the principles of humanity it makes a massive difference and it actually made me think of a very powerful quote in the film from the samuel character who to me, he, he represents um, not just the average individual that undergoes this disillusionment and this subsequent awakening where you try to speak out <laughs> and people just hit you with a brick wall. And then on a deeper level, he's almost the personification of characters like Jesus or Socrates where they get persecuted for speaking the truth. 
But he's got a great line mm-hmm. where he basically says that I will not sacrifice my soul to save my body. And I feel like a lot of people on the deepest level, I mean, we can word that differently as well for people who have, you know, maybe they're an atheist or whatever, just to say you will not sacrifice your integrity for the sake of popularity, right? Or, or you'll do what is right rather than what is easy. And I think on a deep level, people have this calling within them. And what you guys were saying about joining your seminar, it sounds to me like that can help awaken and elicit that calling and cultivate it and help coach these people. But for the individual right now that feels that deep within themselves, and if you can maybe even take back to when you initially began, and I know we're wrapping up here, so I don't want to give you too much of a complicated (laughs) answer or question. Um, What would you just recommend to them? Like, should they just go ahead and check out your seminar thing? Or what should the next step be? Just like speak up? Just just what would it be? The the seminar is more for people who are like already voluntarists learning to to talk to other people about it. Um, what, if you ask me in a year or two, my answer will be send them to a project called The Mirror, which I've been working on for years, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, it's my book, The Most Dangerous Superstition. Um, I'm really dang proud of the the list of reviews it has on Amazon because the number of people who said, well, this made it so obvious and completely changed my life. Well, wow. like, there's just there's like a hundred <laughs> reviews that in one way or another say that the thing is somebody has to already be curious and wanting to think about it. So for anybody wanting to think about it, I would recommend my book, The Most Dangerous Superstition. Now, there's a zillion other videos and articles that, that cover similar topics. I'm certainly not the only one saying this stuff. The challenge to me is all the people who are comfortable enough in their lives that they don't really want to think about it because it's sort of scary and uncomfortable to start to question like foundational things they've always assumed. And for that, that is why we made Candles in the Dark so that those of us who already did think about it and already questioned stuff and already, you know, changed our premises and stuff. So we know how to, to get to them, to start them on the journey. Because the moment you get somebody actually curious where they start to doubt and question things, you don't have to force feed them there. You won't be able to stop them. You won't be able to hold them back from reading stuff, everything they can find and learning about this and pondering this and watching this. And, and it's really that first step of getting somebody to dare to question things that they've always just assumed. And that's, I mean, that, that really is the purpose of the Jones plantation is I want normal people to be able to watch it and be entertained and think that was a cool story. And also now I'm kind of thinking about some stuff that I didn't think before because that first step, and and this seems to be just about universal among voluntarists and anarchists that that first moment when they were like, maybe the whole premise is bogus. Like when they take that step, it's over. Like they're going to take the rest of the journey by themselves. And there are books that can help and videos that can help and stuff, but getting somebody to just, you know, to, to see through a kink in the armor enough to realize something is fundamentally wrong. It isn't just, well, this politician isn't quite as bad as that politician, but to actually recognize something's really wrong here. 
And there's a lot of different ways to start them on that journey. And I actually, I have high hopes that the Jones Plantation is going to start a lot of people starting to question things, even when they don't know what to think about it, because it doesn't, like the Jones Plantation isn't supposed to explain everything and all the solutions and how all the world's going to be paradise (laughs) until the end of time. It just shows the problem but it shows the real underlying problem, not just the, oh, we voted for the wrong guy that time. And as soon as somebody realizes there's enough of a problem that their brain won't give them a break and it rattles around in their head like, yeah, something's horribly wrong, then they're going to take their own journey. And like my book, The Most Dangerous Superstition, a bunch of things can help them on that journey. But to me, the main thing that most of the world needs is that first kick in the pants to realize something is fundamentally wrong with their entire view of reality and morality and law and society and and all of that stuff. And when you like when you realize that the fundamental thing is wrong, it feels like your brain sort of goes, wait, that like unravels the whole world. Now I have to sort of look at the world through this different lens and try to see things again all over again but in a different way and that's where the most dangerous superstition is so valuable and it seems like the feedback that i get from it and that other people have got from it in the movement are like yeah it gave me the words and the mental clarity like once i understood the concept fundamentally but my head wasn't fully clear enough so that i could articulate very easily and effortlessly every part of why this is bogus like once they could do that that's where they felt like okay now i'm empowered i'm not just awakened and going uh what now i am like i can clearly see it i can actually articulate why it's bs and i feel armed and a lot of people would use the term armed i noticed they'd be like yeah i really feel like tmds armed me with like the ability to see this clearly and get it right in my head so i could communicate it Nice. Well said. Yeah. So definitely. And yeah, this is the this is the audio and video version of that, but on that takes a little <laughs> less time to take in. Mm-hmm. Man, um, I had a whole bunch more questions, but we're kind of wrapping it up here. And I think that we got on we got on a better conversational topic than just talking about like specifics of the movie. And it's it was a fucking amazing conversation talking about this with you guys. I mean, uh, I like the the whole concept of just planting those seeds and making people think, you know, after they've seen the movie and as they watch it unfold, it's, it's amazing. So, uh, I'm Larkin, Amanda and dude, Gavin, thank you for coming on such short notice, man, with Jason out. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you everybody for coming on today and for this super illuminating conversation about the Jones plantation. Um, haven't had the chance to see it, you know, like I said earlier, I'm, I'm excited about what you've created here. Uh, I feel it's going to be like a massive red pill, but without actually being a red pill because of the subtle seeds that are, you know, planted through the brilliant analogies throughout the whole film. Um, I urge everybody to go out and watch the film. Um, don't miss it. You know, go go out and see it. It comes out Saturday. Uh, I'm not sure if this podcast will be out before then, but if not, we're going to have all the links to the film uh, below it. So you're going to, I want you to go click on all that. Uh, Larkin, Amanda, it's been a pleasure having you guys on with us. And uh, I can't wait for our listeners to uh, experience what you've crafted. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeehaw.